1: The Buck Sexton Show.
0: Now, spreading freedom across the nation,
2: this is Three, Two, One. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for joining. Today is Thursday, December 22nd. Our last live Freedom Hut show of the year. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be... Wow. Can't believe it. Another, Another year in the hut, everybody. I think we're going on three years now. It'll be three years... I think since the... I think three years since the Saturday show started... Uh, this March, I think? February? So, coming up on three years of, of radio. Uh, to all of you in Team Buck, whether this is your first day or your many hundredth day, uh, y- y- you honor me with your time and I appreciate it, every single one of you. And uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. I want to say it now. I'll say it later in the show, I'm sure, too. But Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to, to each and everyone listening. Uh, Okay, I, I want to do something. We're going to have some fun and talk about some Christmassy stuff, too, obviously, all that, and some history. I, I, I'm trying to jam in a lot, today. trying to make sure you remember in the new year why it is that you do join the Freedom Hunt, give you a bunch of different uh, different Freedom Hunt flavors today, all kinds of stuff, but we do have some news to the current events to work through together, get into the details of, and then we'll talk Christmas and some history and some other stuff, uh, but this is on the... Berlin manhunt underway. Uh, we've got more details about the individual that is believed to be responsible now. They seem pretty sure. I mean, they got the guy's blood and found uh, an ID behind, uh, although in some cases jihadists have left behind the wrong ID and tried to make sure that everybody knew that it was a migrant, is the word we always seem to use in this case for refugees or immigrants. I still think it's interesting that I'm I'm going to have to ask somebody why it is that in the, in the European context, we are always told that these are migrants, because migrants are people traveling for work as far or, or traveling for some purpose. Um An immigrant is just somebody, uh you know, and generally speaking, an immigrant is somebody that's trying to you know, come into your country, right? I mean, I guess migrants are kind of the same, but then why don't we just say immigrant? But I digress. Okay, this is what we know about this individual at this point in time. Uh, his name is Anis Amri. Um, he is 24 years old. It is believed, according to authorities, these are all sources now speaking to various press outlets, but it is believed that he was, um, he's a Tunisian that has been under surveillance by the German authorities for some time or had been under surveillance he also was on the radar of U.S. intelligence. I mean, it's a bad guy. Bad guy that never should have been able to set foot in Germany. And a lot of people are dead. A lot more are very terribly wounded because of this bad guy. So I just think that we should uh, take a moment and understand that there is a, a failure of government here to have protected the people of Germany. No question. This wasn't someone who just snapped in the basement and decided to go out and hop in a vehicle, hijack a vehicle and run down a bunch of people. No, no. This was the classic jihadist terrorist story. A guy had connections in Tunisia to Ansar al-Islam, it is believed. Had received weapons training. He was under surveillance for several months this year. Uh, They knew all, all about him. And he had tried to claim asylum in Germany, so you get this terrorist who's like, "Hey Germany, please give me safe haven and they say, "No, but because he doesn't have a passport, they won't deport him, so they put a a a hold on his a, a, a hold on his deportation. <sighs> this all could have been avoided. this all could have been avoided. Um, He slipped through the cracks, he was already on the radar, they knew he was a bad guy, he was given a dull dung, which is a temporary suspension of deportation, and his asylum request was denied, and they still didn't get him out of there, they still didn't get him out of there, and Tunisia at first denied that he was one of their citizens, because of course they don't want this guy back, because maybe he's just going to go and get his hands on an AK and mow down a bunch of people at a resort, you know, make sure that Tunisian uh, make sure that of course, innocent people die. And also Tunisia's economy suffers. This is everything according to the script. I mean, you could have written this out beforehand, young Muslim male from the Arab world connections to extremists under investigation by authorities that don't move fast enough The law gets in the way of just kicking his butt out of the country. Um, And I guess they were unwilling to just hold him until they deported him. Now, a lot of people are dead. Now, you got a mass casualty attack on German soil uh, in Berlin in, in, uh, in a Christmas market. And, yeah, it's pretty, pretty astonishing when you look at it. You know, and you really get into the details of this. Germany was unable to deport the suspected Berlin attacker in New York Post writes here. Well, I mean, of course, they should be able to deport anyone they want to deport. This should be a sovereign nation's decision that it can just make. Uh, this guy's still on the run. He was caught on, and during some of the surveillance, he was caught talking to, in the past, I mean, uh, to somebody, I believe, uh, an informant about trying to get weapons while he was in Germany. He was trying to figure out a way to get explosives. He had direct contact, it is believed, according to, I think, Tunisian authorities now, uh, with the Islamic State. I mean, he is a bad guy, obviously, but this is a straight-up hardened jihadist terrorist, and the Germans just missed this one. And it was a matter of time. You go back to... uh, Last year, you go back to shows where we talked about the, uh, the massacre at the Bataclan and those huge, those huge attacks in Paris, Those multi-pronged suicide bomber attacks on the streets of Paris on a, on a beautiful fall night in Paris. And we, I said that, I mean, the, you know, the Germans were probably next. And it took a while, but we knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time and you see the limitations that the security services have, even when they, you know, it's one thing when someone self-radicalizes and snaps. Very tough to get them when they go from Islamization to jihadization, right? Unless they start going into, although I think this guy was one of those who went into chat rooms and was like, you know, I pledge allegiance to the Islamic State. I mean, he's one of those. But I'm sure if you were to dig into German laws on this I mean the Brits have learned I will say this about the Brits they've learned the hard way that when someone is advocating violence and overthrowing the state in the name of Islam you got to kick their butts out of your country for a while the Brits were very oh you know they, they, didn't, want to, they didn't want to be seen as rude to people from the third world or something they don't want to be as non-inclusive and the Brits were like um, now you've got to go they finally realized they got to kick people out before this kind of thing can happen the Brits have gotten better on this. Um The Germans, I think, are gonna have a they're gonna have a reckoning here. Because clearly their security service has failed, but also uh their laws were insufficient that even when they had a known terrorist on their hands, they can neither detain him nor deport him? How is that possible? Known jihadists, known terrorists, they can neither detain nor deport. It's um uh, as you look at it, it is Quite a failure, um, quite a failure on the part of, of the security services and the government in this country. And, and Merkel, I think everybody believes, is going to pay a price at the polls. Uh, her fourth effort to be chancellor of Germany is going to be a tough one. That is going to be an uphill climb. It's terrible. I mean, this is a couple of days before Christmas, and uh, you still have people that are trying to deal with the horrific loss of loved ones. Because this maniac, this uh, animal, decided that he was going to mow people down with a truck in a market. Uh, we face a very widespread evil in the world. Um, it goes by different names, and it's not always easy to define. I call it jihadism, but it is a very real virus. It has spread, and it threatens all of our societies. Um, And I am wondering when there'll be the real moment of sort of waking up in Europe and in America that uh, we are at war with jihad and we're going to continue to be at war with jihad and jihadists for a long time. It's not a police matter. It's not going away anytime soon. And I think part of it has to be Facing up to why is it that so many young Muslim men around the world are willing to do things that go well beyond the scope of just, you know, violence is a a constant at different levels in societies all over the world, although in America, for example, violence has been going down and down and down every year, more or less violence becomes less prevalent in our society. But why is it that you have these young men who will do things that no sane, rational person would do, and yet they're not actually psychotics, or you could say they're psychotics in the sense that they've become psychopaths. But I mean, they're they're not people that are have a deep mental illness and a disconnect from reality. They believe that this is what they're supposed to do. I mean, these are the sorts of things that are not possible for a human being to engage in unless they think there's some divine override probably didn't even see the reporting recently about a suicide bomber that was deployed in nigeria who i think was five or six years old suicide bomber who who could put a who could put a suicide vest on a five or six year old and then send that child to go in and kill as many men women and children as possible in a crowded marketplace this is not war this is not Uh, the the fog of battle Uh, this is sadism i mean it's truly evil and there's a lot of it that comes from this one faith tradition and i know that it's unfair to those who are peaceful and law-abiding and love their families and are good people from within that faith tradition that this is happening in a sense but it also is just the reality And as we go into our own holiday season and have some time off, I wonder how many of us are going to sit around and think about this and grapple with what does that really mean? A lot of people are going to pretend that they have answers to this. They're going to say that this is a conflict that's winnable. Okay, it's winnable, but nobody really knows how or how long it will take. And you're going to have jihadists killing people at random all over the world for the foreseeable future. This is the world we live in now. This is one of the legacies of Islam, and unfortunately, from a perspective of security and nation-states, it's among the most powerful legacies of Islam in the 20th and now in the 21st century. Suicide bombers, airport security lines, and now using trucks as weapons of mass murder at Christmas markets. We'll be back in a few.
0: You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show
4: This is the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Buck Sexton here. Let's talk about our sponsor this half hour and let's talk about blood flow for a moment. We all know that healthy circulation is critical, especially as we get older. There's a way to support healthy blood flow, and that's by getting enough dietary nitrates into your body to convert into nitric oxide. SuperBeets is the most convenient way to get these dietary nitrates. One scoop in water or a smoothie and you are all set. This is the secret to helping support healthy circulation and healthy blood pressure levels. SuperBeets works 3 times faster to give you results you can feel, plus it tastes great. It's all about blood flow, blood flow, blood flow. I take SuperBeets every day. I can feel the energy and stamina it gives me within 20 minutes and I want you to feel it too. So call 800 800- uh, 311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com get a 30-day supply free it comes with your first order and is backed by a money back guarantee also receive a free book Beat the Odds and free shipping on your entire order you'll love the results you feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com um i got to tell you The Trump trauma is leading people to act like just complete. This is one of these times where I kind of wish I could let some profanity fly, but some just total jerks. Uh, You know, Ivanka, whom, yeah, you you guys have told you before, we were friends when we were kids a long time ago. She was a very nice girl. I've, she really was. I, I, you know, I haven't seen her in about six or seven years now. But she, when we were growing up, we went to camp together. I mean, she's a really, sw- she was a sweetheart. She was always really nice. And I don't even if she wasn't, if she was the meanest girl I knew, and I actually knew some really mean girls. Uh, I mean, they're like wicked pretty, but they're really mean. Um, if she was really mean, I would still feel this way. She was on a JetBlue flight with her kids. She's just trying to fly back to New York City, and some moron starts verbally berating her on the plane. I I have to tell you, I'm kind of waiting for the day when somebody, and and I I worry about this a little bit, and I've sort of talked to my family about this too, because I don't deal well with this kind of stuff. I'm also a guy, six feet tall, you know, knows how to handle himself a little bit. So it's different than when someone goes after a woman with her children, but if someone came up in the street and yelled at me for something I'd said on TV or something, I mean, I think there's a decent chance that we're going to throw down. It's completely unacceptable. And that somebody would start verbally berating, verbally assaulting a mother in front of her children because of what? what did it, first of all, what did Ivanka even do? She's just the daughter of the president elect. Like, oh, she's going to be the de facto first lady. Yeah, well, we'll see. She hasn't done anything, though. All she's done is be polite to the media and talk about being a working mother and Helping with working mothers to get childcare. You're going to yell at her for that. She's she's responsible for everything. Her dad is. It's just. But this idiocy is on display all the time, and people have no shame. I mean, because it really they 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 do feel like they've suffered a trauma, and therefore they have an excuse for lashing out. They think that there's some justification for being so childish. Just acting, honestly, acting like a bunch of punks. You've got a, oh, uh, another one. And this one sort of hit home because yesterday I was on the train, uh, or the subway, le metro, and whatever, the train. And sure enough, I hear that viral video I played for you from Delta Airlines of that guy, uh, Adam Sella. And there's a couple of gentlemen standing next to me. And there, one, I, I mean, I know. Can I guess properly? I'm right about when I try to get someone's ethnicity. I'm, I'm certainly in the right region, and I'm usually right about the country. Seventy five percent of the time, maybe ninety, but I'm pretty good. East Africa, West Africa, I can usually get that right. Uh, anywhere in the, uh, anywhere in the sort of South Asia, I'll usually at least get within a country away from where it is. I'm pretty good. I'm just saying. Uh, but I'd say one gentleman I, I would guess was uh, Ghanaian, and uh, another gentleman who was with him I would think is probably Moroccan. If you had to, if you put a gun to my head, and they're watching this video, and they're watching this video of a complete and obvious hoax on the subway right next to me, and I don't know how they had the maybe they preloaded the maybe the Wi-Fi sometimes works in the subway sometimes it doesn't, and they're watching this video loudly, which I also find very annoying. And I'm thinking, here we go, because they hadn't one of them clearly hadn't seen it yet. And I'm thinking, here we go. Let's let's see if he can tell that this is, is this is nonsense. And this guy gets furious, starts yelling about how I'm going to yell. I'm going to speak only in Arabic now in front of people. I'm going to bust out my prayer rug. I'm going to make sure next time I'm on a flight. You know, he's basically saying he's going to be as provocative as possible in solidarity with this hoax video. Because he couldn't tell it was a hoax. You want to talk about fake news? Here's some fake news for you. Delta tip my hat to them. They're like, we interviewed everybody. These clowns were causing a disturbance. It wasn't about racism. It wasn't about Islamophobia. You can't yell and freak everybody out on a plane. Sorry. Good for you, Delta. Merry Christmas. But it was very frustrating to sit there and watch a couple of my fellow Americans on the subway who couldn't figure out this was a hoax video and are then going to go act out In support of the hoax video, at least is what they were saying. More problems caused by this. Back in the future.
1: The Buck Sexton
3: Show. On the Blaze Radio Network.
5: Sensing the truth.
1: This is
3: Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Indeed, some jingle bells there for you all. Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, Wanted to talk to you about Christmas a bit, so we're bringing on a Christmas expert. No, that doesn't mean that he's just the best at opening presents. He actually knows the history of Christmas. William Federer joins us now. He is a best-selling author and a former U.S. congressional candidate. His book, There Really is a Santa Claus, A History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions, is available now online. William, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you.
0: Oh, Buck, great to be with you.
2: So please tell us, this St. Nicholas, or Sinterklaas, tell me about him. Where did this guy come from? He he was a real person. He wasn't just a jolly fellow in a red suit coming down through the chimney.
0: Right. Well, St. Nicholas is actually the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. He is to the Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. And the Greek Orthodox traditions are he was born around 280 A.D., and that's still during the first three centuries of Roman persecutions of the Christians. And he is in Asia Minor. Today that's Turkey. And his parents died, leaving him with a lot of money as a young man. And a movement that swept through the church at the time was if you really became a Christian, you were expected to give away all your money and join the monastery. And so he uh, gives away his money to the poor, but he wants to do it anonymously because he wants the credit to go to God. And so he would sneak into town and leave money for poor people. And one story that was popular was a merchant in the town of Patara had gone bankrupt. And back then, the creditors would not only come and take your house and lands. They would take your children. And so this merchant had three beautiful daughters. He knew if they were taken, it would probably mean a life of sex trafficking or forced marriages. We hear stories about that today. Um, and so he had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas hears the problem. Late one night, throws a bag of money in the window. It provides the dowry. The oldest daughter can get married throws in another night for the second daughter. It's a big buzz, talk of the town. When he throws in for the third daughter, the dad's expecting it. He's waiting up. He runs outside catches Nicholas. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell where the money came from because, again, he wanted the credit to go to God. So this was the origin of the tradition of secret gift-giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death, which was December 6, 343 A.D., and the stockings by the fireplace, the midnight visits, so forth. Now, the three bags of money he threw in the window were remembered by pawnbrokers and they hang three gold balls outside of their shop their pawnbroker shops uh to represent those three bags of money and they say well we're rescuing families in their time of financial need sort of like saint nicholas so he is considered the patron saint of pawnbrokers a little bit of a stretch but that's what they consider um anyway he is uh going on a pilgrimage to the holy land he's going to join a monastery somehow the lord impresses on him not to hide his light under a bushel He makes his way back to Asia Minor, today that's Turkey, gets off at a busy port city called Myra, today that's called Demre, and unbeknownst to him, the bishop had died. The church leaders could not decide who the next bishop was going to be, and they basically asked him to be it. But the attitude was that the Roman emperor was arresting bishops and killing them. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, 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 I insist, you be the bishop. Uh, and uh, so he was not too thrilled with it, but he agrees, and he is arrested, and he's put in prison awaiting death. And then the emperor dies, Diocletian. The next emperor, Galerius, dies. And uh, the toss-up is four generals, and Constantine wins. And he ends the persecution of Christians, and so Nicholas is let out of jail. And now that it's legal to be a Christian... He preaches against the Diana worship. Nearby to Myra was Ephesus, and they had the temple to Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was twice as big as the Parthenon in Athens, 127 huge pillars and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19 preaches against the Diana worship there in Ephesus. Well, Nicholas preaches against it as so much the people tear the temple to Diana down. And then there's the Aryan heresy. So the first three centuries of Christians, they don't live long enough to argue over doctrine. Uh, Once Constantine legalizes Christianity, Arius starts the first heresy, says Jesus is a created being, is a little less than God, writes a catchy song, the Visigoths, were some people group that came into the Roman Empire, they converted en masse to Arianism. So it's splitting the Christian church and splitting the Roman Empire. So Constantine orders all the bishops to settle it. They do at the Council of Nicaea. And the story is that Nicholas was so upset at Arius for starting this first of all heresies that Nicholas slapped Arius across the face on the floor of the conference. So jolly old Saint Nick had a little temper. Anyway, he dies in 343 AD, and uh, the Greeks would leave leave presents for each other. Uh, Vladimir the Great, the emperor of Russia, converts to Greek Orthodox Christianity, adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia, and then the Muslims invade in the year 1087, and they're trashing the churches across Asia Minor. Uh, matter of fact, all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were all wiped out by the Muslims. These New Testament letters to Ephesus and Galatia and Colossae and Corinth, all the cities were wiped out by the invading Muslims. And so the Christians move the grave of their famous St. Nicholas over to Italy, a little town called Bari, B-A-R-I. And the pope that dedicates the church is Urban II, people may not be up on their pope names but that's the same pope urban the crusade guy the, he, yeah he goes to the Council of claremont and begs the european leaders to send help to these greeks that are being conquered by the muslims they send help it's called the first crusade so the saint nicholas story is coming to western europe is at the same time period as the first crusade um then uh now that nicholas's traditions are in italy uh the gift giving is so popular then it sort of becomes a distraction. So in 1223 A.D., St. Francis of Assisi invents the first nativity scene, saying we need to get back to the reason for the season. Jesus was born in the manger. Then the Reformation starts, and uh, Martin Luther in 1517 ends the saint's days in Germany. And the Germans like the gift-giving. So he moves all the gift-giving to December 25th instead of the December 6th, the visit of St. Nicholas. And uh, he says, all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle. And today we pronounce that Chris Kringle, right? So Kindle, like kindergarten, kindergarten, kindercare, Kind means child, and Chris means Christ. So Chris Kindle meant Christ child, or as we say, Chris Kringle. But we begin to see the story moves a little bit. So you know, uh, Catholics say St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. Well, the Greeks do a take on the prophecy in Revelation where Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse, and the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint after all, so he would be one of those riding a white horse. They just have him coming back once a year for a little mini-judgment. A little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right track, see so who's naughty, see so who's nice. And then in Norway, they didn't have white horses, so they had him riding a reindeer. And the saints come from heaven, the celestial city, the new Jerusalem, that turns into the North Pole. The angels turn into the elves. the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turned into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice. And so you sort of see it gets a little bit off track there. Anyway, um, in England, uh, Henry VIII brings the Reformation, but he makes it more of a marty Gras, sort of a partying time, and the Puritans then take over England and outlaw Christmas. But the Dutch, to this day, still have St. Nicholas coming once a year, dressed as a bishop, and he's riding a white horse, and he's giving out presents, and he has with him... A little Muslim helper named Zvarte Pete, and they tell the kids, "If you're naughty, Zvarte Pete will put you in a gunny sack and take you back and sell you into Muslim slavery." Muslims enslaved over a million Europeans throughout the Middle Ages, and there were whole Catholic orders. Anyway, the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, and that's. So, when so wait, I-
2: instead of getting a piece of coal in your stocking, it was the Muslim slave traders are going to come get you. The Dutch, interesting stuff.
0: Right. And so I've actually talked to people from Holland, and they said, yeah, every Christmas Eve, all the little boys would go to sleep at night uh, with a pocket knife in their pocket. And I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Vart Date Pete took us. So makes often sense when to you me. Tell them Santa Claus is coming. They start crying. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to have tormented my little brothers with that one.
2: William, but, can um, we, uh, we, I wanted to hit a break. Can we keep you through the break? Because I have more questions about Christmas to ask you. Is that all right? Do you have sure, a couple sure. minutes? Um, sure. Yes. And tell everybody where they can get your book. This is fascinating stuff.
0: Uh, it's called There Really Is a Santa Claus The History of St Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions and amazon.com has it uh, but my wealth website also is americanminute.com
2: All right William we're going to be right back with William Federer he is an author and a former US congressional candidate There Really Is a Santa Claus it's on Amazon right now we'll be right back
3: The Buck Sexton Show Discover more at the blaze.com/radio
5: The Blaze Radio Network
1: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Merry Christmas, team. We're back with uh, Bill Federer. He is the best-selling author of "There Really Is a Santa Claus: History of Saint Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions," available on Amazon.com. All right, so let's talk about some of these traditions, uh, Bill, because we didn't have time before the break to get into some of this. I was wondering if you could tell me, for example, about oh, where does the twelve days of Christmas come? Where does the twelve days of Christmas come from? And where does the Christmas tree come from?
0: Well, um, 567 A.D., they couldn't decide what day's holier. December 25th in Western Europe, Christmas, or January 6th in Eastern Europe called Epiphany, the visit of the three wise men. And so at the Council of Tours there in 567 A.D., they decided to make all 12 days from December 25th to January 6th the 12 days of Christmas and they call them holy days and over the centuries the word holy day got pronounced holiday and so when people say well let's not call it christmas let's call it a holiday uh well what's the hol what's the- what's the holy days it's christmas okay you can't get away from it i mean even our calendar goes back to what uh 2016 what uh years since the birth of christ even our very calendar goes back to the birth of christ um in um Anyway, I I wanted to throw in real quick how it transitioned from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus um, uh, in if I have a moment. Um, In New York, the Dutch settled it, and the Dutch brought over their St. Nicholas traditions of the visit once a year. And Washington Irving, now we know him because he gave us the legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Well, he wrote Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York. And he starts with the beginning of the Dutch settlement, and he talks about the Dutch tradition of St. Nicholas visiting once a year. But he describes him no longer wearing a bishop's outfit of the mitered hat and staff like he does in Holland, he describes him wearing a Dutch outfit of long trunk hose, leather belt boots, and a stocking hat. And so that was in 1809 when he switched his outfit. And then in New York was Clement Moore. And his family owned a big farm. Today, that's the neighborhood of Chelsea. There's a Clement Moore Park there at Tenth Avenue and Twenty Second Street. Well, Clement Moore is a Hebrew professor at the General Theological Seminary of Protestant Episcopal Church in New York, and he writes a poem for his kids in 1823 titled "A Visit from Saint Nicholas." It was a night before Christmas. All through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that saint nicholas would soon be there a lively old driver so lively and quick i knew in a moment it must be saint nick up to the housetops of course as they flew with a sleigh full of toys and saint nicholas too i drew in my head and was turning around down the chimney saint nicholas came with a bound. so he's still saint nicholas but he shrunk a little now he's a right jolly plump old elf i laugh when i saw him in spite of myself so but he's still the saint uh and then we see the civil war starts And there's an illustrator for Harper's Weekly magazine named Thomas Nast, N-A-S-T. He's the one that invented the Republican elephant and Democrat mule for his political illustrations. Well, he's the first one to put a North Pole sign behind an illustration of St. Nicholas talking to the Union troops. And it was actually a political jab at the South to say St. Nicholas belongs to the North. Right and uh, prior to then, Saint Nicholas comes from the celestial city, heaven. That's where saints come from. 1930, Coca-Cola hires an artist named Haddon Sunblum, was famous for his Quaker Oats man on that box of oatmeal, and he does a painting of Saint Nicholas drinking Coca-Cola. Uh, he does one a year for 30 years, and now he's full-grown size again, rosy cheeks, ruddy complexion, a nice huggable grandfather, and that's uh, what we have today. But if you peel back all the layers, it really does go back to a St. Nicholas who uh, did love Jesus, uh, lived during the 4th century Asia Minor, was imprisoned for his faith by the Romans, stood for the doctrine of the Trinity, slapping Arius across the face with the and hairs, he preached against paganism and sexual immorality there at the Temple to Diana, but he was very generous, and he gave to the poor in their time of need, and he did not want to take the credit for it. And so that's the origin of the person. So instead of it being, you know, Jesus is good, Santa is Satan, you know how they try to... No, no, Saint, uh, Santa Claus was the Dutch pronunciation of Saint Nicholas, and he was the godly man. Anyway, but I um, uh, wanted to throw that in. Um, but as far as the, the 12 days of Christmas, um, there wait, was... what about the Christmas a,
2: tree, uh, the Christmas tree. We only got about a minute. I wanted to get the Christmas tree in there.
0: Christmas tree. So uh, the uh, German story is that St. Boniface was a missionary uh, in the 5th century to the Germanic tribes, and they worship Thor. That's where we get Thor's day, and Wednesday comes from Woden's day. Those were, you know, uh, Germanic gods. Well, anyway, they're going to sacrifice Prince Alsop to this Thor, and St. Boniface comes, chops down the oak tree, And uh, then he points to an evergreen tree and says, this is the tree of peace, and see how it points toward heaven, and it's evergreen, and let it shelter no deeds of blood. And and so there's actually a statue in the town there of uh, St. Boniface and this stump of a tree that he chopped down. And so the Germans like the tree, but it was Martin Luther that uh, on Christmas Eve put some candles in the branches of the evergreen tree and says, this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. Of course, the, the lights at that time of year go all the way back to Hanukkah, so it's sort of like those two were sort of melded together into the Christmas tree. Wow! But, uh,
2: William, I, I tell you, I'm tell you, I'm going to get your book. This is awesome. This is all this stuff is in your book, right? I'm going to go check this out on Amazon. Uh, William Federer is the author of "There Really Is a Santa Claus: The History of Saint Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions," uh, and also you can go to AmericanMinute.com, uh, which is his website. Bill, you are a fantastic radio guest, sir. Thank you for giving us your time, and have a merry Christmas.
0: Well, thank you, Buck, and Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely. All right, you take care, Bill. I was on, I I was just getting started with all that Christmas history. We got more history coming up, but not Christmas history.
4: The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
6: spreading freedom
0: across the nation this is
1: the buck sexton show
2: team buck welcome back to the freedom hunt we were just talking some christmas history now we'll talk history that occurred during christmas Uh, the battle of the bulge On the morning of December 16th, 1944, 18 men of the Intelligence and Reconnaissance Platoon attached to the 99th Infantry Division found themselves directly in the path of the main thrust of Hitler's massive Ardennes Offensive. Despite being vastly outnumbered, they were told to hold their positions at all costs. That description of the book, The Longest Winter, The Battle of the Bulge, and the Epic Story of World War II's Most Decorated Platoon, the author, Alex Kershaw, joins us now. Alex, thank you for uh, calling into the show. We appreciate it.
5: Yeah, my pleasure.
2: Uh, so Battle of the Bold started December 16th, obviously went through Christmas. Walk us through the story, if you will, of the 18 men of the 18th Intelligence Reconnaissance Platoon attached to the 99th Infantry Division. What was it like starting on December 16th?
5: Uh Well, they, they were awoken by the greatest barrage on the Western Front in World War II that lasted for about an hour and a half. And then they were very unlucky because they found themselves in the worst possible place at the worst time. They were in a, on a hillside overlooking a road um, down which this spearhead, the SS spearhead, uh, under direct con- command of Adolf Hitler, uh, that road led just below their positions. And they were given an order about 8 o'clock in the morning that they had to hold their position above that road at all costs. And they did so to to the last bullet in several cases. They were dragged out of their foxhole around about nine hours later, having killed, some people believe, around about 500 German soldiers. Um, all of them taken into captivity. All of them spent today and Christmas of 1944 in POW camps. Uh, and all of them, of the 18, miraculously survived captivity. And then in the 1970s, when... A lot of research was done into the Battle of the Bulge. It was discovered that by holding that position for that long, long day in that uh, very, very bitter cold December of 1944, by holding that position, they'd held up the critical advance of the Germans that day and made a massive difference to the outcome of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, And Their actions were belatedly recognized, and they were awarded medals by uh, President Carter in 1978 Uh, And the medals that they were awarded made them the most decorated U.S. platoon of World War II um, for their actions in the Battle of the Bulge.
2: Alex, can we step back for a second and have you tell everybody just some of the backstory of what was the sort of state of play on the ground in this part of the Western Front right around Christmas time? starts December 16th, but obviously escalates uh, into the period where we are right now. Um, and what was the German intent here? How big was the offensive? What were the Allies? uh, How are the Allies prepared for it on the other side? If you could give us some of the backstory and the
5: the details. uh, It's the the biggest battle that Americans have ever fought. Um, Almost 800,000 Americans were involved in some way. Uh, The Battle of the Bulge is named after the 80-mile bulge that the Germans forced in the Allied lines. It was in the Ardennes in Belgium, very heavily forested, inhospitable terrain. And it was called Hitler's last gamble. He thought that by hitting the Allies where they least expected it on what was called the ghost front, a quiet front all through the Ardennes, um, by launching a massive surprise attack, what he could do is take the Allies by surprise, which is what worked, and then um, get to Antwerp or some of the channel ports, split the Canadians and the British and the Americans, and then um, basically be in a position to negotiate the end of the war Uh, On his own terms, Um, hopefully the Allies would sue for some kind of settlement in the West and then he'd be able to turn the full might of the Wehrmacht, the German army, to to, to the East and try and stop the the Russians advancing on Germany there. So it was called Hitler's last gamble. We were taken completely by surprise. Um, You know, over 200,000 German troops launched a very, very violent attack in the early hours of the 16th of December 1944. And it took us completely by surprise. It was absolute chaos and panic, um, consternation all through the Allied ranks, Eisenhower, Patton, uh, you name it, they were all um, completely taken by surprise. Um, It was asked to rank as the greatest Allied and greatest military intelligence failure, I would say, in in U.S. history. How how the hell can you not uh, work out that anything is going to happen when you wake up to 200,000 Germans? a, what were a, a, the one of assumption. the parts of this?
2: Obviously, it's it's occurring, uh, it's launching right at the at the start of of time in in Europe. What yeah. were the conditions like on the ground? I mean, I know much has been made of this for uh, those who survived. I've even interviewed some of the survivors myself, and they said that right. it was about as it was about as miserable as you could expect for wintertime uh, in the Ardennes forest. Yeah,
5: no, it was. Uh, I mean, I've been there. Uh, I mean, I've been there several times in the winter, and uh, you know. I, I I haven't slept for two nights or a couple of weeks in a row um, in a foxhole when it got to minus 10, 15 degrees at night. It was the the coldest winter in living memory in Europe, the winter of 44, 45. So you had had whole infantry companies that were decimated, not by the enemy, but by trench foot, frostbite, the cold. Um, It was terrible conditions. I mean, I couldn't think of any worse conditions. Maybe you'd have to go to the Guadalcanal and then, Pacific in the jungle to, to fight in worse conditions. But the veterans that I have interviewed have said that that winter of 44, 45, you know, that you, you slept next to a guy and you hugged the head out of them because you needed their body warmth. Just, just to, and they were afraid. Uh, the major fear that guys had in foxholes during that uh, bitter battle was that they would uh, freeze to death, that they, they, that they wouldn't wake up. But if they didn't hug someone warm next to them or they didn't constantly uh, wake themselves, that they would they would fall off into a, a deep sleep and they would um, die of frostbite. And that, in fact, that happened in several cases.
2: Speaking to Alex Kershaw, author of The Longest Winter, available on Amazon.com right now, what turned this around? I mean, clearly it was sort of a sucker punch to the Allies. Uh, how were they able to sort of re- regain their bearing and, and push back this offensive? Was it just sheer
5: weight of, of manpower and numbers? Uh, in in a way, yes. I mean that you know that that does explain the, the outcome in some ways. But let's not forget the that the Battle of the Bulge was really General Patton's finest hour. I mean today today the 22nd of December 1944, almost to the hour, um, Patton took control of the American part of the battle and and pivoted an entire army, the Third Army, um, towards Bastogne, where the 101st Airborne were um, pretty much surrounded. Um, so if you're looking for the hero of the hour uh, for the moment when, I believe, one of America's greatest, finest generals ever, when he acted very decisively um, in counterattacking the Germans and, as he says, trying, as he said, trying to cut them off and then destroy them, um, it came down to General Patton, who was the most prepared during the crisis to, to turn what was a, a terrible uh, disappointment and shock into... Somehow, an Allied victory, and um, he was the man of the hour. He, he managed to do so very, very incisively and brilliantly.
2: And you focused on the in in the longest winter on these eighteen men uh, who were there on day one, December sixteenth, and and as you said, they all went into captivity and all survived. Uh, weren't there instances of the SS? executing people even who had surrendered. I mean, it seems like they beat the odds tremendously, both in in surviving the initial clash and then surviving in Nazi POW camps. I mean, this has got to be... It feels like it must be unprecedented that 18 go in and 18 come out.
5: Yeah, I I couldn't find uh, another unit where they'd been in such intense combat, um, a firefight that lasted basically a whole day, um, where where you hadn't had any fatalities, but um, the the guys they held up were um, an SS Panzer unit um, led by a guy called Jochen Piper, who became very notorious after the war for what was called the Malmody Massacre. Uh, The Malmody Massacre occurred on the 17th of December, the day after uh, the platoon I write write about held his unit up, and it's thought that he was so enraged and frustrated by the delay that was caused by these guys that he he went on the rampage, and um, many of his men Massacred Belgian civilians in Malmedy, on the early in the early hours of the 17th of December 1944, over 100 Americans were lined up in a snow-covered field and machine-gunned to death by um, SS tanks. Um, and they and they carried on like that. They carried on like that for about 12 days until they were finally surrounded by the 82nd Airborne and um, and stopped and then forced to retreat. So yeah, the Battle of the Bulge was notable for what. The SS called Rabats. They, they used to use the term Rabats, which means a little bit of fun. And their idea of fun was to massacre nineteen-year-old GIs with their hands in the air and women and children in these small villages of Belgium in the winter of 1944.
2: What were the conditions like in these German POW camps, and where were they? Were they just be, sort of behind uh, behind front line positions, or were they did they get sent back further into Germany? Where did these
5: eighteen men uh, go, go? Ahead. Yeah, well, we you know, that uh, Battle of the Bulge, we had about, uh, over 20,000 Americans were taken taken prisoner. In fact, one division, the 106th division, um, <laughs> over half of that division, you know, talking about seven or 8,000 guys, didn't even get to fire a shot, and they were taken into captivity. So the Germans had a big problem. They had a lot of guests of the Third Reich that they didn't know how to look after, and they couldn't they look after because they already had a massive concentration camp system. Um, but... Some of them were taken into the central Germany, and then most of the, um, the guys in my platoon, the INR platoon I write about, they ended up in April of 1945. Actually, being liberated by their own their own division, the 99th Division. They actually were at barbed wire enclosures when they saw guys with the checkerboard patch, the 99th Division patch on their shoulders, and jeeps come to to liberate them.
2: That's got to be the happiest so, day of their lives,
5: yeah. Yeah, well, it was definitely. And the, the guy that led this platoon was uh, just twenty years old when the action occurred. He was a guy called Lyle Balk Junior. And sadly he just passed away ten days ago literally. Um and uh, he was actually lying in a this will give you an idea of how bad things got, there was a lot of dysentery starvation, they were on very, very you know, bad diets, um and uh, he was dying um of malnutrition. Uh and in fact, um Scurvy, if you can believe it, he was dying when he was lifted out of a uh, a cot in a barracks by his commanding officer, a, a major in the 99th Division, taken in a jeep to an evacuation hospital, and then and then uh, began a process of about six months of trying to trying to regain his health and weight. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of these guys who were taken prisoner um, suffered a lot of deprivation because you, you can imagine what it was like to be a POW in the last. Winter and spring of the war inside the Third Reich, um, I, looked, I talked to a couple of guys who told me that they actually felt pity for the German guards that were guarding them because these guys these guards were living on like you know a, a moldy potato each day. Um, so it wasn't just the prisoners that were suffering, it was the entire entire country that was falling apart and starving.
2: Alex Kershaw is the author of The Longest Winter, The Battle of the Bulge, and the Epic Story of World War II's Most Decorated Platoon. You can get it now on Amazon.com. Alex, really appreciate your time today. Merry Christmas.
5: You too. My pleasure. Thanks a lot.
2: Uh, Team, phone lines are open. 888-900-3393. If you just want to call in and say Merry Christmas to the team, or you know what? We're getting wild. If you want to throw in an action movie quote and see if you can get me before the holiday, I dare you. See what you got. 888-900-3393.
3: We'll be right back. Buck Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network.
4: listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Sponsor this half hour, silencershop.com. Look, I know it's the holiday season, Christmas is in a few days, but you don't have to only get yourself a nice gift on Christmas. You can get it for later in the year, too. Think about a silencer, suppressor for your firearm. Uh, it's the best way to go, period, on silencershop.com. The simplest buying experience, a friendly knowledgeable staff, They're there to help with any questions you may have, and they know how to process the applications properly to make sure that you can get through it and get your silencer. And once you have it, I'm telling you, firing with a silencer is awesome. I've been out there on the range a bunch of times with suppressed weapons, and if you're offering me firing old school or firing suppressed, I'll take suppressed every day of the week. makes it a more enjoyable experience. It also looks cool. Check out silencershop.com for all the latest brands and the best prices and the best service. Silencershop.com. Again, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. One thing we did not get to before with our really excellent Christmas historian, by the way. That guy was great. Uh, I'm actually going to pick up his book. Uh, and was, our Battle of the Bulge historian was excellent, too. We only we just rock and roll on the freedom. We get the best guests. It's just how we do it. Uh, but we didn't talk about the Krampus Which is a thing. Uh, And I I know about this, I'll be honest with you, because I was flipping through Netflix recently, just looking for something to zone out to. I don't know. Maybe I'll splurge in 2017 and get cable, you know, big boy style. Actually actually pay for cable. I haven't paid for cable TV in, I don't know, eight years now, something like that. Maybe a decade. No, eight years. Uh, So there's that. But I was looking through Netflix, and there was this, and it looked like it had a sort of a Santa i mean, a, a Christmas theme to it—and I guess that's why they're pushing it now because it's you know Christmas time. But it was called Krampus, and I could tell it was like, "Ooh, that does—that doesn't look like Santa Claus." It was a little scary, and it was this sort of uh, demonic-looking hand holding a snow globe, and I was like, "Oh, well no presents for me from this guy." Turns out that the Krampus is a half-sort of demon. Uh, half goat figure uh, with big horns who is the sort of counterpoint in some Germanic traditions and clearly we learned about the Dutch and the Muslim slave traders threatening the, the Dutch telling their children the Muslim slave traders are coming for their kids which by the way that would have really sucked you would not have wanted to have been picked up by those slave traders I read a lot about how they treated people uh, you mean slavery is not just a thing that happened in America? That yeah, I know, right? You mean Muslims actually practiced an enormous slave trade? Yeah, I know, it's crazy. Who knew? Uh, but the Krampus is a uh, is sort of the the bad cop to Santa's good cop, if you will. He it, they think it comes from Germanic and and perhaps even Norse traditions. Uh, he is sometimes referred to as sort of a horned god of uh, warlocks and witches. And he was in Germanic folklore. Uh, Of course, it was banned for a while by the church because, you know, church didn't like all this all this fun stuff. Uh, But in Germanic folklore, the Krampus would uh, beat bad children with a stick. It's terrifying. If you look online and type in Krampus, you'll see there's also Krampus parades now in Germany where people dress up in very scary costumes. Uh, But it's a sort of goat like devil figure. And they had these parades of the Krampus that usually happen in early December. Uh, but he beats children with sticks who are naughty and takes them back to his lair. Whoa, sketchy, uh, bad guy. So the Krampus is also a thing. Um, and now it's, it, they think it comes from early pagan celebrations around the sort of winter time, And um, they don't really totally know. But yeah, Krampus has stayed around as a, as a, sort of the he's sort of the evil Santa Claus, if you will, and some of the masks are really scary. So yeah, just wanted to share about the Krampus. I'm not going to watch the. I'm sure the movie is terrible and not in a good way. It's not terrible, but awesome like Point Break. It's just terrible, like terrible. Don in San Diego, Merry Christmas! You're on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up?
6: Hey, Merry Christmas, Buck. How's it going?
2: You know, just happy the holidays here, my friend. How about you? <laughs>
6: Live in the dream, buddy. Live in the dream. Exactly.
2: Okay, are you ready? Oh, got we, we, got we, we got an action movie quote? Okay, all right. I'm, I'm okay. gearing up. I'm ready.
6: Okay. I told my wife, don't worry, honey. I never drive faster than I can see.
2: Oh, man. Oh, hit the buzzer, John. He's got me on this. I don't know. John, do we not have the buzzer? John's ready for you. There we go. Yeah, I buzzed out. What is it?
6: So disappointed. Big trouble in little China.
2: Okay, I love that movie. I've seen that movie a million times, but like that's not we're looking. Look, I'll, I'll give hey, it to you, Dom. A, hey,
6: that's, it's an action movie, man. No, no, I, it's, it's it's not, not
2: that it's not an action movie, but I mean, you know, it's got to be quotes more than like, would you like water with dinner? I mean, it's got to be a little, a little <laughs> more substance to the quote. I mean, this is borderline. I'll take it. I'll, I mean, we'll, we'll, Dom, we're putting you up on the board. You know, two points, but still. Okay. I, I, I feel I feel like I you know there's so many great quotes in that movie. I mean, you're gonna give me a Jack Burton quote. You're gonna give me that one. Fair well, enough, you though. quoted
6: the one you quoted the one about when the the eight foot gorilla grabs you by your neck you quoted that one so I thought you would get this one because it was right before it
2: all right you snuck one past me on one of my, on one of my favorites too on big trouble little China devotee so I might have to go back and check it out much more so much okay. more uh much more so than big Trouble, in little Tokyo or whatever or showdown in Little Tokyo not a good movie exactly. uh, also an action exactly. movie Don in San Diego Shields hi. Merry Christmas thank you very much for calling in good to talk to you um Team Merry Christmas stuff Or action movie quotes Or anything We're wide open Light them up Be right back
3: The Buck Sexton Show On the Blaze Radio Network
1: Sexton
2: show. Our team, we're back and we're joined now by Matt Walsh. He is an author on TheBlaze.com, also author of the Matt Walsh blog. Uh, He's at Matt Walsh blog on Twitter. And he's got a couple pieces up, including one on advice to millennials. Uh, Hey, smug millennial liberals, Here are some New Year's resolutions for you. Matt, great to have you. Merry Christmas.
3: Merry Christmas. Thanks for having
2: me. Uh can we just first uh I, I just wanted your 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 reaction to this uh Adam Saleh video. It's now come out that this was uh, that other people on the plane you, you know what I'm talking about, right? This thing that went viral yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh it, it went it went viral and, and it was so obviously staged. I mean this guy's you know, he's showing the the, crowd, the the people on the plane and they're all looking at him like, dude, go away. And I may, I saw someone yesterday watch the video on the train and get completely outraged, thinking that it was real. And I was like, this is, this is why we can't have nice things, America. Uh, but it seems to me that while maybe fake news happens on the left and the right, hoax, hate crimes or hoax, hate acts are entirely a province of the progressive left. Yeah,
4: yeah, that's what it seems like. And, uh, you know, if we keep hearing the scourge of Islamophobia in America, just like the scourge of homophobia. We always hear about this. And if it's actually happening, then can you give us like a couple examples of a real occurrence? Because they always seem to be fake. And it seems like if you actually have Muslims being persecuted in America, which they aren't, but uh, if they were, they wouldn't need to invent these things. And not only that, but if you go to places where there's actual persecution going on, the persecuted minorities are not much in the mood to fake uh, hate crimes against themselves, because because they have plenty of real ones, so it's not a joke to them. But I think even beyond that, it's like with, with it, it's, there's absolutely no effort made by the media or by anyone who passes these kinds of hoaxes along. no eff, Not even the slightest, smallest little effort made to confirm them, because if they made the smallest effort, they would see that this guy is known. That's why he's a YouTube star, quote-unquote, is because he's known for doing this. This apparently is his whole... Life is just going out and trying to provoke or incite uh, this faux kind of Islamophobia by, go, by going out and trying to
2: pass himself off as a
4: terrorist. And so all you had to do was just go and look at his channel, and you would have seen that. And uh, apparently, quote-unquote, journalists can't even do that much.
2: Matt, I don't know if you, we had some fun with this yesterday. We looked at his earlier video trying to show that— I mean, he's not even good at this, by the way. It's like—it reminds me of when they had— When they had that woman who was sort of dressed in tight clothing and they followed her around uh, New York City for whatever it was, eight hours, just to show how much um, the manarchy sort of objectifies women. And, yeah, there are guys that whistle at women that wear tight clothing and, you know, that's not nice. It's rude they shouldn't do that. But then the big problem was that on the entirety of the video of the eight hours, it was all – uh, black and Hispanic men shown doing it, and there was this huge backlash against the racism of the video, and, you know, so so that was yeah. a fail. Uh, there also is the fail that this guy has of trying to do an, an, another one of these sort of undercover experiments where they have a police officer looking at him dressed, you know, sort of in Western style and then dressed in, in, in Muslim garb, you know, Arabic Muslim garb, and the cop is so obviously not a cop. Have you seen this? He's like, "Why are you dressed like this? I'm an officer of the law. I mean it is laughably bad, and that got millions of views,
4: yeah, because people don't this is the this is the this is why we have the epidemic of fake news because nobody nobody applies even the slightest bit of critical thinking to this or 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 makes any effort to verify that and I think well, it's just because if it, if it fits into your prejudices and your worldview, and you want it to be true, then you're willing to overlook quite a bit, even if it's clearly staged like the one you're talking about, or in this case with the airplane thing. I, I just People are willing to be lied to if it fits into their worldview.
2: And now I want to talk, speaking of worldviews and people who are willing to be lied to, we've got a piece up on uh, TheBlaze.com right now. Hey, smug millennial liberals, here are some New Year's resolutions for you. Now, obviously, this is in in, uh, sort of a not in response directly, but I'm sure this is somewhat uh, driven by the MTV, as you as you point out here, the MTV video about white, uh, how white men need to do better or something. You have your own ideas for smug millennials you share in this piece. Uh, Like, number one, stop being bigots. Do tell.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I just want to point out that I, I knew when this video came out that there was going to be approximately 6,000 uh, responses along the lines of what I wrote from conservative bloggers. And, you know, and I, kind of think, I think I got mine up first anyway. Uh, so I just want to point that out just, you know, but I t- to me, the the thing that struck me about the uh, about the video and anytime you listen to a liberal is the yeah, just the, the naked bigotry that, of course, has been remarked upon many times that comes out and they seem to think that they've got some kind of bigotry hall pass where as long as they're directing it at white males, uh, wh- white straight males, by the way, it's, it's even more specific than that, that it's okay. But, but obviously, you know, that's not the case. And they, they they have to um, do a lot of kind of mental gymnastics to make, to, to make that work because what they'll claim is that, well, it's impossible to be racist against white males because white males are in power and uh racism can never go in that direction. racism is always down from the direction of power to the people who don't have power and that makes no sense on so many different levels considering that our our president happens to be black but uh that also has not, of course nothing to do with it so it, it seems pretty obvious but it, i think the point needs to be made that um if you are expressing hatred towards all white males that you're a bigot so at least at least embrace that and accept it and you know what at the very one thing I'll say about white supremacists, um, that there's not a lot I would say for them, but at least they they'll they won't pretend that they're not bigoted against non-whites. They they embrace it and they'll tell you that that's how they feel. So the the um, the supremacists on the left, all I want them to do is just be honest. Just say, yeah, we hate white males. We think we're better than them, and uh, we're bigots.
2: And one more, you've got a, a few resolutions here, but I also wanted to get to this one: uh, develop an iota. Of humility and gratitude
4: yeah that's one thing it's specifically directed at um, younger the college-age liberals that were in the video and those like them that it's just striking how little gratitude and humility they have and that's the criticism that we can make. We, we could all do well to have more of that but particularly with them uh, and when you uh, that video was the, the very first I think person that pops on the video was a minority woman uh who says that uh america was never great for anyone who isn't a white male and it's just have some your your family you're a minority woman um as as a woman and and as a minority on virtually anywhere else on the globe you would be in so much worse shape than you are here your family came here because they recognize that America is obviously greater in many respects from the place they left, that's why they left. So I have a little bit of uh, a little bit of gratitude, and I know it might be really triggering to say, but even even the the dreaded evil white males, um, white males aren't the only ones who founded this country and built it and did all these great things, won won world wars and innovated technologies and so forth. They're not the only ones, but um, they're largely responsible for a lot of that. So maybe even a little bit, of, maybe even recognizing that. Not only are all white males not bad, but many of them are responsible for a lot of the great things in your life right now. So a little bit of gratitude might might come in handy.
2: <laughs> I like it. A little bit of gratitude, a little bit of a high five for white males at Christmas season wouldn't be wouldn't be a bad yeah, thing. Why
4: not? Every once in a while. Why not? I got I
2: got to throw in one more, and then I just want to ask you some Christmas questions, Matt. Stop worshiping Beyonce. Couldn't agree with you more. Don't understand this. I have no. I have no. I'm not a Beyonce hater. I just don't think she's that good. And why do we all have to pretend she's that good? She's just okay.
4: Yeah. Yeah. She's not. It, it's. I find her music obnoxious. I think her voice is kind of bland and uninteresting. She's, but she's a good dancer, um, and her lyrics are vile and illiterate. But, but she doesn't write them, so I don't even blame her for that. But yeah, I mean, fine. She's she's talented in some respects, not in others. And why can't we just think that about her? Why she's become this deity-like figure on the left, and it's a little bit, it's uh, it's a lot absurd actually. So I I don't get.
2: Mm. it. I mean, the Beyonce police may wait until after Christmas to come and take you from your home, but you're on record now, Madden.
4: Trust me, the Bayhive, I have uh, provoked their wrath on many occasions, and uh, yes, they, they take it very
6: seriously.
2: All right, a couple, a couple of questions for, for a segment we're going to start doing called On the Fly, where I just throw some random stuff out. Best Christmas movie, and Matt Walsh's opinion is?
4: Well, you got to give it to It's a Wonderful Life. I, I, it's hard to beat them.
2: Like okay, that. fair enough. But is Die Hard a Christmas movie? i
4: no, oh,
3: he's
2: hesitating. Well, he's hesitating. <laughs> no, it's not a Christmas. It's, a, it's
4: Christmas <laughs> is just the, it's the. Look, any movie that happens to be set in December is not a Christmas movie.
2: <laughs> Die Hard fans, you know, at Matt Walsh on Twitter, you can you can have this out with him as to whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. Um, and any any fun uh, family traditions, anything specific or. Uh, or is there is there a, a whiskey of choice, a single malt of choice that you would recommend someone savor over the Christmas holiday if they were to ask you? Anything, any of the above?
4: Well, I mean, Christmas tradition, look, we've got a lot of kids in our family. Um, I grew up with a lot of kids, you know, I have five brothers and sisters. We have 15 now nieces and nephews in the family. So the Christmas tradition is just to watch, you know, a Christmas morning, you just watch these children just devour presents, and it's just utter chaos. And... um and so, you know, I think I think that's that's what I'm used to. It's it's. Uh, I've been to some people's houses on Christmas where they've got a very orderly. There's just a few people, and they just open presents, and everything's nice. But every Christmas, most Christmas is my family. It's just utter complete chaos. And uh, I think that's the way Christmas should oh, go. Nice. So, so, so it's the, like Christmas,
2: it's like presents Thunderdome. It's like it's like everybody's every man and woman for himself or child yeah, for himself. Yeah, and and I,
4: and I, absolutely. And I and I do prefer. There's a good age. There's a good Christmas present opening age for kids, and it's like between the ages of two and about five or six, and because they're so grateful, it's cute to watch them. But then they get a little bit older, and, you know, nobody enjoys watching 12-year-olds open gifts because they're ungrateful, and and it's just, it's not, there's no cuteness to it, so I just, I have a preference there. As far as alcoholic beverage, uh, I mean, you can't, I, I already, I have the uh, Four Roses uh, small batch ready to go at my house, and I just... You know, it's not too fancy, but you can't beat that, in my opinion.
2: All right. Matt Walsh, author of the Matt Walsh blog, also writer for TheBlaze.com. Check out his latest pieces there and follow him on Twitter and join his Facebook army as well at uh, Facebook.com slash MattWalshblog. Is that right? Yep, you got it. Yep, all right. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for joining us, my friend. Merry Christmas to you and yours, and uh, we'll talk to you in the new year.
4: Merry Christmas and happy Kwanzaa as well. Thank you.
2: Team, we will be right back.
4: Uh, Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
2: Timmy got a couple calls. Let's take him. David in Missouri. Merry Christmas. shield' tie.
3: Hey, what's up? Um what's up? I was calling up about uh, your Battle of the Bulge story. Indeed. And uh, this is kind of maybe this just kind of a curiosity for your sake. Um, my my name, last name's Westfall, but my dad's oldest sister married a fellow by the name of Maynard Sexton. And he was in the 106th Infantry Division. And he was... He talked he kept a diary as a POW in World War Two. And uh he was taken uh, at POW on December nineteenth. They had played cat and mouse with the Germans after going into the Battle of the Bulge. And he had some pretty hair raising stories and some just some nightmarish stories and I thought maybe you'd be just, just gotta be curious to hear about that because uh, he would talk about it like Boy Scout troops and stuff like that. But he had some really interesting tales, uh to talk about uh, being captured by the Germans after playing, like I said, cat and mouse for three days with the Germans up in the Ardennes. Do you want to then, share
2: one of his tales with us while we, you know, we got about a minute or so?
3: Well, sure. Like Like after playing, you know, spending three days lost because they changed all the road signs around. Uh, their column is driving along. Uh, they came to a stop after three days. One of the, they're driving along and they come to a stop. They all get out. Their POW is his driver had been shot in the head and uh, their POW is they go off to camp. They take away all their shoes and their coats and they give them just the, uh, you know, thin boots and coats and stuff like that. He ended up with frostbite at the bottom of his feet and stuff like that. He had the bottom of his feet ended up jelly like later on in life. Um, he talked about being transferred from one camp to another. Uh, it took them, they packed them in so tight, uh, they were. They had no. They had to stand. They were packed in those trains cars for six days and five nights. Only one person was ever allowed to get out to get the food, and the whole train load was given eight ounce. Every person was allowed eight ounces of water, and the whole railroad car, each railroad car was only given one loaf of bread. And that was like I said for six days and five nights, and then of course you have the matter of having to, you know, take a crap and go pee and stuff like that. Uh, he just had these amazing stories, and it never—it didn't break his. You know, it it affected him, but it didn't. It didn't break him. Um, it was—he just had some amazing stories.
2: I hear you, uh, David. Uh, thank you very much for calling in from Missouri. Merry Christmas, and thank you for sharing the stories. Appreciate Merry it. Merry Christmas to you too, uh, Lee in Texas. I'm assuming Doctor Lee. What's up, Doctor Lee? Merry Christmas.
1: Hey, back. Merry. The Christmas. doctor's in the house. Yeah, Sorry, I just like
2: saying that. Go <laughs> <Yeah>. ahead. <laughs>
1: Uh, Merry Christmas to Team Buck as well. Indeed. Yeah, so I uh, have two movie quotes and then I have a question for you. We only have Um, 60
2: seconds, so we're going to have to roll through these pretty quick. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so movie quote one. This is from my husband. Why is Private Pile eating a jelly donut?
2: Oh, dude, of course. That's that's a full metal jacket. I'm ready to go with that. Okay.
1: Okay, so this one is mine. So. Did you just waltz in here and bark at your commanding officer? Because if you did, I'd call that a bonafide brain fart, and I resent it when people fart inside my office.
2: He oh, got me. What is that?
1: Di Jane. Oh,
2: I've never seen that. The movie about I'm Demi no. Moore and the oh come on action movie, Doctor Lee, you're killing me here. The hubs, the hubs nails it with Full Metal Jacket, but oh okay. And what's your Doctor Lee? We got thirty seconds. What's your question?
1: So in the Marines uh, story yesterday, it was really awesome, but my husband and I are wondering why there was no guard tower and there were no barrels trying to stop the um, truck coming forward. It seems like a lapse in responsibility. Interesting
2: question. I do not have an answer, but Dr. Lee, Merry Christmas to you and the hubs and to everybody. Shields, High, right back. You're listening to Buck
4: Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
6: Freedom
0: across the nation. This is
1: the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. We have Jay Nordlinger with us now. He's senior editor of National Review, and he's the music critic of the New Criterion. He writes about politics, foreign affairs, culture, language—a whole bunch of stuff. His first collection was called Here, There, and Everywhere. Now he has a new collection of essays out. Digging In, Further Collected Writings of Jay Nordlinger. Jay, great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, Tell us a bit about the collection, Jay. Tell us about Digging In.
6: Well, it's a smorgasbord or a cafeteria, if you like. It's a grab bag of pieces, about 75 of them on various topics. I have profiles of people and travel pieces and essays, some language, some music, uh, it's kind of an A to Z, or at least a an A to S, or something like that.
2: Who is the unassuming oil man who is also a modern day Horatio Alger, for example, or a Horatio Alger story? Well, that's some. Um,
6: that's a fellow named Harold Hamm, who's an Oklahoma oilman. He's the head of Continental Resources, and he was the thirteenth and last child of cotton sharecroppers. He became something like the. 30th richest man in the world, and I don't mean to dwell on money, uh, but it is a measurement, and he has done astounding things, and it's kind of reassuring to know that that sort of thing can still happen in America.
2: Indeed, and and there's a 100-year-old Austrian who survived four concentration camps. That must have been quite a story. How did you uh, get into that one?
6: Well, I had the sad duty of uh, attending the funeral of a friend of mine, in Salzburg, Austria, where I do some work every summer at the music festival. And a man who spoke was the head of the local Jewish community. And uh, someone told me, that guy is 100 years old. He looked about 75, and he survived four concentration camps. He likes to quip, I could write a Michelin guide to the camps. So I sat down with him to find out about his life and adventures. That's not quite the word, although he has had some adventures. And this fellow, three years ago, he was 100. I believe he's still going. He had vivid memories of World War One. So every, every now and then, as you know, you meet someone and think, huh, that's someone extraordinary under the sun.
2: Absolutely. Uh, a pretty dramatic switch of gears here. Also, one of the essays deals with uh, a prima, before I tell you this, by the way, my mother actually was a dancer in the court of Ballet of American Ballet Theater when Baryshnikov uh, was the principal there. So I guess I have ballet in my blood, or at least somebody who's a blood relative is, uh, is still in love with the ballet, even even to this day. Um, but uh, you, you write about a prima ballerina. Tell me a bit about that.
6: Well, your friend Barishnikov, if I may put it that way, <laughs> promoted a girl, a teenage girl named Julie Kent, in a movie and uh, called Dancers, I believe. And she became a beloved dancer of Baryshnikov's company, ABT. Uh, all of us are in love with her. And uh, she was retiring, age mid-40s, I think. And I thought, well, there's a hook. You know, you and I are always looking for a hook. Maybe I can go talk to her. And I did, and she was absolutely enchanting. And one of the things I like about this profession, uh, journalism, is it's a license to be nosy and it's a license to meet people. And that, frankly, is what I did with Julie Kent. And I'm awfully glad I did. She was an extremely interesting interview.
2: Speaking to Jay Nordlinger, he's senior editor of National Review, and he has a new book out, Digging In, Further Collected Writings of Jay Nordlinger. Uh, Jay, tell me a bit about the explosives camp. I, I have some experience with explosives, but of the C four kinds, not of the. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming this was this was meant for people in the in, in the industry and in commerce, not you know overthrowing foreign governments or dealing with bad guys. But tell me about the explosives camp.
6: Well, I guess once you have the explosives, you can do with them what you want. That's uh, a fair I, point. It, it, in America, there's a summer camp for everything. Apparently, you got music, you got sports. Uh, I knew a girl who went to number theory camp. That was definitely not for me. And I heard about an explosives camp in Rolla, Missouri, at the former Missouri School of Mines. And they teach kids how to blow things up responsibly. And I said, I have to see this slice of America. How can something like this exist in modern America where we're so concerned about everything? But sure enough, I hear kids learning how to make shells and set them off and all that stuff. And I thought I'd really seen something new or at least new to me.
2: Did you, if I may, you know, I spent a a fair amount of time in my earlier professional career around all sorts of firearms, you know, using and training and and then carrying them. Uh, I, that never really made me uncomfortable at all. I I liked, uh, I liked shooting. I, I liked being at the range. But I do have to say that explosives always made the sort of hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. You know, you learn about blasting caps and the explosive train and all the things that go on. Yeah. Did you handle some of these things yourself? I mean, I remember the first time I actually had C4 in my hands, I thought to myself, well, I could make the little animals like Bill Murray does in Caddyshack, and then I realized that that would probably be an explosive's faux <laughs> pas. But did you did you get near them? Because the, the concussive force of these things, when you're really around them, is, is quite an awakening in many senses.
6: Well, I, the middle-aged guy, watched teenagers do it, and, and they were sitting at their picnic tables or something like that, making their shells, and I remarked to a counselor, you know, it almost looks like ordinary arts and crafts, and she responded, arts and crafts with an edge. I would say so.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I, I did not do any of that stuff as as a, as a youngin. Only as a uh, only as me a neither. government a government <laughs> employee, I could say. Tell me a bit about this uh, this uni- unicorn of a university, as you call it, in Guatemala.
6: I heard something about this classical liberal university. This university devoted to classical liberal ideas, free enterprise, individual rights, and so on. This place in Guatemala City with. Uh, Uh, a a Milton Friedman Auditorium, an F.A. Hayek, this, uh, Ludwig von Mises, that. I just had to see it. And I went to see it, and it's true. It's this astounding university called the Francisco Marroquín University where these principles are taught. And you don't have to believe it when you enroll, but that is the emphasis or the slant of the university. And it's one of the most prestigious universities in Central America, They've done great things, not just for the individual students, but for the country in terms of privatization and so on. And I really had to see it to believe it, this Van Mises Auditorium and Adam Smith Plaza and all that, in this beautiful, I could almost call it a tropical grove. And it's true, it exists. I, I wish I had a, Spanish, a Spanish-speaking kid to send there.
2: You know, it's funny, I have an artist uh, friend, a childhood friend, we grew up together here in New York City, and he, he does art with a, a sort of a political message, and one of them is he's created a, a Hayek that is it's sort of a form of pointillism, I guess. It's entirely out of miniature letters, a, a, like a three-by-five portrait of Hayek. It's huge. So people get creative with these sorts of things. There, there are conservative, uh, conservative artists and conservative academics out there, and it sounds like this place in Guatemala is, uh, is, is definitely worth seeing. Also fantastic coffee, from what I understand, as I sit here uh, getting my my morning brew going. Tell me a bit about, uh, I mean, I I can't see that this is part of your anthology of essays. Speaking of Jay Nordlinger here, he's got a new book out. It's a collection of his essays, Digging In. uh, And I see that you're going to talk about Obama and golf. I want to hear about this.
6: (laughs) Well, uh, a lot of people on my side of the aisle, our side of the aisle, the conservative side, have knocked Obama for playing so much golf. And uh, I thought he was kind of safe out there. I appreciated him on the golf course sort of more than at work. And also I wanted to defend golf because some of Obama's left-wing critics said, well, it's an elitist sport, not really something a good liberal democratic president should do. And I, in an essay, told about my own experience growing up with golf and working at golf courses, a couple of munis, as we call them, municipal courses. And where I come from, Golf is a very, very democratic game, with a small d. It's for one and all. Uh, It's for the working stiff and the CEO and the man of leisure alike. So I wanted to write about Obama and his goth habit and uh, defend him a bit, which wasn't really my usual mode during the eight years of Obama.
2: And you defended him how? Well, I think it's a wonderful pastime.
6: Uh, And it's great for... uh, making friendships, Uh, you're not really hurting anybody. It's a game of honor and ethics. And I think presidents should get out uh, a bit and do stuff like Eisenhower and his golf, and I think Hoover and his fly fishing. I thought it was a fairly innocent and, in fact, um, admirable pastime. So I wanted to to stick up for Obama.
2: I'm definitely going to have to at least excerpt this interview we're doing, Jay, and send it to my dad because he would completely agree with you on the wonders of golf and how anybody who would ever criticize anyone for too much time on the golf course just hasn't experienced it for themselves. They're, they're, they, they need to go check it out a, a bit more. Um, uh, one interesting thing you, you talk about in the essays is uh, when do you use someone's first name? Can you give us some of the? I don't. I know I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, you're giving away some of the story here. I get that, but give us no, a little. No, not maybe. at all.
6: Well, when, when love, do you use a first? I love giving away the store.
2: <laughs> All right, give away. Well, buy the anthology, everybody. But he's giving you the store right now on radio. Um, tell me a bit about when you use a first name, in your opinion.
6: Well, this started when Vice President Joe Biden was going around in public referring to the president as Barack, and I thought that was a little bit strange because vice presidents usually don't do that, not in public. So this was the germ or the spark of an essay on the use of first names and how tricky it can be. Uh, Here in America, we're a pretty first-name country. We're a casual country. It can be a little tricky uh, abroad. And I tell a story. I think I've mentioned Salzburg. I stayed at the same hotel there for many years in August, and I got to know the night clerk pretty well, a fellow named Klaus. And I so wanted him to call me Jay, and I wanted to call him Klaus. He was about my age. And so he agreed to do it, but I could see it caused him such discomfort, I said, never mind. And I realized it was wrong of me to kind of insist that he call me Jay, because it made him so uncomfortable. Uh, Another time, for example, an older woman, mother of a friend of mine, I called her Mrs. So-and-so a couple of times, and she said with great annoyance to me once, why don't you call me, and then she said her first name. And I thought, but didn't say, well, lady, because you didn't ask me. So it's a kind of a funny essay.
2: I remember being uh, made fun of by some of the the counselors at various sports camps I went to because I called everybody, sir. So I went to Jesuit school and I went to Catholic school and we, we, that was just what we did. And they're like, you don't call me sir, You call me first name. And I just, as like a 15, 14 year old, I had a hard time, with uh, people, you know, anybody over the age of 21, I thought was a sir. So I, I understand, you know, <laughs> this, this, this could be uh, this could be difficulty. I got a couple of quick ones for you before we close out here, Jay. I know you end digging in uh, with a suite of musical pieces or music pieces. Uh, let's yeah. ask you, okay, uh, you have only one CD of one artist or composer you can bring with you to Nordlinger's Deserted Island of Freedom. What is it? <laughs>
6: Gun to my head, gun to my head. Handles Messiah, it wow. never fails to uplift and console.
2: Okay, fair, fair point. You have, uh, you, you are forced to tell an alien species that there's only one TV show that they can watch that you think is the the sort of the height of that medium. The, basically the greatest TV show for you ever oh. made is what?
6: Oh, Buck, I, I quote my. My old friend and boss, Bill Buckley, that question is like peking duck. Requires 24 hours notice.
2: Okay, fair uh, enough. We, we can. I, give I, guess, you, I guess But, Jay, I guess next guess time you're this on, this don't this think, this I'm gonna think I'm going to forget. The buck is like an elephant. I'm going to remember this one. So we're going to have to get – we're going to corner you on the best TV show question. Uh, I'm working on it,
6: babe. Working first
2: on it. Bu- first book you can remember reading that made you think, wow, I love reading. So now we're going back to, you know, little Jay.
6: Yes. I loved presidential biographies simplified you know for children presidential biographies it made me love america and history and politics
2: all right jay nordlinger digging in his anthology available now we can get this on amazon jay soon
6: very soon and for now it's store.nationalreview.com thank you for asking
2: all right jay uh, senior editor national review great to have you sir appreciate you joining today and uh, we'll talk soon
6: Thanks a million, and give off a chance, Buck. Give it a chance. (laughs)
2: All right, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Team, we'll be right back.
6: You're listening
0: to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: team we just had jay nordlinger on for mash review we were speaking a little bit about uh you know expl- a camp where you learn about explosives um i went to a camp as an adult of sorts where you learned about explosives um part of it uh, was ied familiarization which is a, another way of saying ied avoidance uh trying to avoid ieds out in the field um also Just having a better understanding of the tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, that the enemy was using, unfortunately, with with great effect at the time um, against us, including with uh, EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, uh, which are a a horrific weapon, but um, devious and somewhat ingenious in their chemistry and in their creation for the uh, defeating of armored vehicles. Uh, explosively formed penetrators, those of you who served in Iraq, Afghanistan, particularly in Iraq with the EFPs, know what I'm talking about. Um, They were able to punch these cylindrical holes in the holes of uh, even heavily armored vehicles. Um, But I always remember being around explosives and and in the, and I had training that was sort of, again, at the, at the familiarization recognition level, I was by no means somebody who was uh, handling them on a regular basis or, or you know, I have a, a friend here in New York City who is a, an EOD tech, and you know his his knowledge of explosives is you know on a scale of one to ten is I don't know maybe a nine point five or a ten. I, I'd let him I'd let him pick for himself. Uh, you know, mine is if the average person is a one or a two, you know, I'm like a four or a five on explosives. Maybe maybe a four, um, but they were uh, they are teeth rattling. I mean, when you get Near these things, uh, the concussive force and uh, and part of it also uh, for safety purposes. Uh, By the way, I'm thinking about this because uh, not just I mentioned it with with Jay before here and there's a camp where people are going to learn about explosives and deal with them, Uh, but because there's this huge uh, explosion at a fireworks market and right outside of Mexico City. Killed 31 people and dozens more have been badly burned. I mean, if you see see the um, footage of this, uh, it is, well, is spectacular in the sense that it is a spectacle. It's obviously horrific in that people died. uh, But there's footage of what happened here. And you can imagine a giant fireworks market exploding. It's it's like nothing else uh, I've ever seen. I mean, this is why I think, in part, you've got a very high death toll, which is just terrible. I mean, can you imagine you've got people who... Are just going to pick up fireworks or you know in- enjoy fireworks for whatever reason and they're in this market and the whole th- the whole thing just combusts I, I wonder what they're going to find out about how this happened. Uh, it was a chain reaction explosion it ripped through all these stalls at the San Pablito fireworks market um, and it was very well stocked as for the holidays down in Mexico they like to for the Christmas season apparently I didn't even know this they like to uh, light off fireworks you know i remember being uh, in, uh on the other side of these things uh, setting up large explosive charges under vehicles and, and detonating them not for this for training not you know not in a uh not in a combat sense and it's just i, I don't know explosives always always really kept me on edge even handling uh, detonators i always felt like when you are, are handling a detonator and, and this is you know sometimes we could do f- familiarization within the military. The military was great that way. If you're an intel officer, um, you could go to the different places where U.S. U.S. Mill trains and practices, and you know get some time, get some time in on, on whatever the discipline is, on whatever the skill set is that you're trying to acquire. Uh, but I remember the just even the blasting caps. Uh, thing, and they one of the things they showed you was what happens to people who don't have. Respect for blasting caps in terms of treating them like an explosive device because they're so small, and they—I remember seeing photos, and I'll be honest with you—they still haunt me to this day. So, explosives—I do not think are fun. I'll be honest with you, but some of you, I guess, if you're going to play with them for the holiday season using fireworks, be careful.
1: The Buck
3: Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Mr. the Buck Sexton
2: chill. Well, Team MTV caused quite a stir here. I want to play this video for you in full. It's, uh, it's a bunch of, well, you'll hear it. It's 2017 New Year's resolutions for white
3: guys. Play the clip, John. Go. Hey, fellow white guys. It's about to be a new year. And there's a few things we think you could do a little bit better in 2017.
1: First off, try to recognize that America was never great for anyone who wasn't a white guy. Can we all just agree that Black Lives Matter isn't the opposite of all lives matter? Black lives just matter. There's no need to overcomplicate it. Also, Blue
3: Lives Matter isn't a thing. Cops weren't born with blue skin, right? I mean, yeah, they weren't born blue. Stop bragging about being woke. Stop saying woke.
1: Learn what mansplaining is, and then stop doing it.
3: Oh, and if you're a judge, don't prioritize the well-being of an Ivy League athlete over the woman he assaulted.
1: We all love
3: Beyoncé, and yeah, she's black, so of course she cares about black issues. (laughs) I'm talking to you, Fox News.
1: Feel free to take Kanye West, though. You guys can have him. You know
3: what you did, Kanye. Nobody who has black friends says that they have black friends.
1: And just because you have black friends doesn't mean you're not racist. You could be racist with black friends. Look, guys, we know nobody's perfect. But honestly could do a little better in 2017 some of you guys do a great job some of you don't please because
3: 2016 is bad 2017 can't be worse than this all right because this is bad
2: i agree with them on that point this is bad it's a terrible video of just just childish stupidity uh the notion that it's okay for some people to make these sweeping and look there's some people in the video who are People of color. There are others who are white, and you know. But that, see, it, what's really fascinating is that the left has learned nothing about what's just happened over the past year. When people talk about the political correctness, uh, the cult of political correctness, and the sort of progressive orthodoxy that has taken over, and all of the, uh, the, all the sort of PC mandates that seem to just sort of spring up out of nowhere all the time. That often refers to this kind of stuff about, oh, well, we can say whatever we want about, you know, white people or denigrating white men is okay or speaking to white, specifically white men, because at least women are, even though I believe they're a majority of the population on earth, they're considered, you know, minority sort of status or protected status by the left. And that speaking down to or denigrating or criticizing white men because, In the left's lexicon, there's a power imbalance that inherently exists because of white privilege. Uh, It's not okay, and I think this is where where we finally reach this point and and see that the left really believes that they can mock and ridicule white men, and it's okay. It's it's in fact really an obligation because it, it has a sort of balancing effect of offsetting white privilege. This is really, a, this is, I'm going to use a word that the left has largely co opted. This is offensive. This stuff offends and annoys people. Uh, when you undermine the hard work that people of any skin color, including white people, do by saying that they've gotten where they are because of their skin color, that annoys people. What's fascinating to me is that because of affirmative action, we do in fact know that there is a legal regime of pro-minority discrimination in this country for schools for jobs but you could never bring that up and and to judge somebody by the color of their skin who goes to a certain school let's say someone goes to harvard and they're um samoan just so we you know take it out of the really the real sort of heat of the racial discussion for a second here uh love samoans it's cool you know i'm just trying to pick a, a random group Um, But I do believe Pacific Islanders get a a leg up in the admissions process, similar to what Native Americans do, African Americans do, Latinos do. Interestingly enough, South Asians, Arabs, they don't. But they're a protected group, but not for the purposes of hiring, for the purposes of college admissions. Because there's really just – this is just a a system that is in constant flux and is changing based on the whims of – of the progressive left. It's not rooted in any particular principle, right? Initially, it was about rep- making sort of things right that had been the wrongs of slavery, making that right at some level. But then, well, why are Latinos included? Oh, well, it's under-representation. Okay, so there's under-representation of a group. That means that that group then gets – where do we stop that? Is it Does it now include uh, those who are – uh, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, transgender—the answer, of course, for college admissions purposes, is yes. And and more and more, by the way, for school—I mean, for uh, hiring purposes—we see it's also yes. Uh, but this—the the sort of pop culture idea that has really taken root and that has become very prominent—that you that making fun of white people—it's really the only group that it's safe to mock anymore—is white males, particularly white male. Well, white male Christians is really what they're talking about. But white males in general, um, that's the only group that you can just you can completely pile on, denigrate, make fun of. You can make judgments based upon their skin color and completely get away with it. And it's fine. You can essentially say whatever you want to people in that group. I mean, you, you. See this video here, MTV's releases. They've now pulled it down because of all the backlash. And maybe it's a publicity stunt, right? Maybe MTV, which I didn't even really know was a thing that existed anymore. I mean, certainly nobody watches music videos. My understanding of MTV is it's now like one long series of, you know, teen mom shows or something. I don't know. Like really lowbrow reality shows. That's my my sense of what's on MTV. But I, I don't have cable and I don't really know. But I do know that nobody's like watching the latest Motley Crue video anymore. The Motley Crue was awesome back in the day. I'm just saying. So it's kind of amazing that those guys that for a while the coolest of the cool was to have as a guy was to have like giant frizzy hair and wear super tight leather, like lime green leather pants and have a boa and be on stage. Like that was you were at the top of the you know, alpha male, I can date any woman I want pyramid in the in the 80s and into the 90s in this country. Although grunge and C- Cobain, Stone Temple Pilots, all that stuff kind of changed it. You know, Pearl Jam, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, that all knocked out the sort of hairband era. But that hairband was even a thing is sort of astonishing. And I think it's only really it was only really possible because of MTV and that revolution. Anyway, MTV is now uh, struggling for relevance. They put out this video. They talk about Black Lives Matter. Uh, they have the most sort of superficial understanding of, of all of these discussions and debates. I mean, some of this stuff is just low hanging fruit, no matter who you are. I mean, even even in sort of like the two digit crowd, two digit IQ crowd to uh, talk about how anybody saying that they have black friends, mean it, that doesn't mean they're not racist. I mean, you know, we, we've heard this joke a million times. And it, it's interesting because you're allowed to be asked, do you have any black friends? And that's automatically an accusation in and of itself, right? So they can be like, do you have any black friends? And then if you say yes, you are mocked for thinking that somehow that is uh, absolving you of the possibility that you are racist, when really the only way to not be racist is to adopt the progressive orthodoxies of the left. That's what they want everyone to think, and that's what they want everybody to believe. But, I mean, looking back at this video and the things that they they have on here Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, mentioned talking about Black Lives Matter. uh, I suppose we're all just going to ignore, or they believe we should ignore, that Black Lives Matter led to uh, mass casualty attacks on police officers, uh, that Black Lives Matter protests, which I saw myself, which I walked alongside and, and and looked at with my own eyes, had posters and placards up of the kind of stuff that you would never want your movement to be known publicly for saying because they have to at least pretend to want police reform. You know, it has to be about ending police brutality. It has to be about um, stopping these sorts of things from, uh, from occurring that all of us agree are bad, right? Nobody wants an innocent person, a white, black, any color uh, to be harmed by police. And we all want police accountability. But why is it that the black lives matter? Well, you go to these protests, as I've said to you before, and they talk about how young black men are being hunted across the country, young black men are being murdered and killed. And that's a very loaded, uh, pardon the terminology, very loaded accusation. The idea that young black men are just being killed by police, more or less for sport across the country, is going to lead to very severe and very serious consequences. Um, And we've seen that play out. And it's not going to happen it's not going to happen in every case or at all times, but it is going to be something of which we must be uh, cognizant because we've seen what what happens here. Um, But anyway, that's more sort of specific to Black Lives Matter, which is only one of the many things they bring up here. But just the mentality behind this in our hypersensitive culture on race and where we're it's funny because there's some people who think we can never talk, we never talk enough about race, even though we talk about race all the time and we're surrounded by discussions on race the news cycle will be dominated for weeks on end when it comes to race and you had a whole movement black lives matter that was getting endless media coverage and very favorable media coverage even when it didn't deserve it at all that was about race that a network that i'm sure i forget who owns mtv i'm sure it's one of the sort of giant parent companies you know viacom or one of these things that owns john do you know who owns mtv i don't know who owns mtv i'll find this out um I mean, I know it's not a standalone, so... Oh, yeah, Viacom, I was right, even when I think I'm wrong. Uh, Viacom owns MTV. I mean, there's so much PC in the corporate cultures of these organizations, and they're always so concerned with the creation of controversy or anything bad happening, anything going on here that, you know, is, is uh, problematic from the perspective of public relations, and yet... They would create this video, and there's real – it wasn't like one person went off and did a sort of Facebook Live somewhere. They'll create this video, and they will allow um, people under the MTV banner to mock white people. And that just strikes me as utterly uh, indefensible. And I know that we're supposed to say, oh, I know, how offended are you, you know, white male with your white male privilege – you know, I'm, I'm not offended in the sense that I really care, but it just sort of shows the stupidity and the uh, pathetic shallowness of the left that they seem to think that this is helpful. Like, like white people in this country, this is the underlying premise of this video, that white people in this country need a lecture right now. And you no, know, you no, know, some people need a lecture, people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, but not everybody from any Ethnic or racial background needs a lecture on anything. Thank you very much. And making sweeping generalizations of the kind you see in this video, uh, the sorts of uh, you know very broad stroke uh, mocking tones that they use here, is really to me just sort of a- a evidence of, of how detached from reality the left has has become on a lot of these issues. Um, they don't see that this is going to be a liability. There is the pos- there is the possibility, and I should state that I think it's at least a 50-50 shot. They did this knowing they'd have to pull it down. They did this because they're so desperate for attention. And also, it's a form of, even when they have to pull it down and say we overstepped, it's a form of virtue signaling. It's a way of telling everybody, all the sort of young uh, millennial idiots that see this stuff and think that it's really edgy and great, um, they see this and they think, well, you know, MTV, they've really got it. They've got their finger on the pulse. They understand stuff. So there's a desperate effort to be edgy, hip, relevant here. As I say to you, the the real counterculture, I mean the, the real insurgency within the culture is comes from the right actually. It does not come from, you know, the, the people that speak truth to power overwhelmingly these days are conservatives. This this notion that sitting around and talking about white privilege and the patriarchy and the uh the manarchy and all that stuff makes you brave is nonsense because that's always said only in an echo chamber of the sort of leftist safe space, which much of the media is already. Um, But by no means are they doing this in a forum where those ideas can be challenged. And in fact, when they are challenged, even outside the forums that they want to share these notions of mansplaining, manarchy, patriarchy, male hegemony, all that stuff, when they are challenged from the outside, they want to sort of find some means, some mechanism to shut down those challenges. They, They look to find a way... Uh, they look to find some means of having somebody else weigh in by saying that the, the favorite way of doing this, as I've told you before, is to say that they feel unsafe now. Your, your words or your positions, your ideas make me feel unsafe uh, because obviously any, any, normal, any normal room full of Americans that has someone standing up there who's giving a very uh, worthless and condescending lecture on like the manarchy. And somebody who's just a normal person who's like, "What does this even mean? How is this relevant? How is this helpful? Why? Why do we allow this intellectual laziness to persist?" Um, that you know, the first person loses that debate. That's why they don't want to have a debate; they just want to lecture. Uh, team, we're eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three on the phones. So we're going to go to a break. We'll be right back.
3: The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at Blaze dot com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network.
2: What's up, Team Buck? I've got to say that we are uh, closing out the show today, and I'm not going to be doing a live show tomorrow, as it turns out. We're going to have a sort of special best-of-the-year show from various radio hosts. I just want to say uh, Merry Christmas to all of you, uh, to you, your families. Uh, Team Buck is the best part of what I do. I have uh, tremendous respect, appreciation, and affection for all of you. Uh, you are the best Christmas present and the only Christmas present that I really want and, and need. I'm excited to be joining you in the new year, 2017. We're going to have a lot to get to. So for all of you, a big hug. Merry Christmas. And, of course, Shield Time.
4: The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.